Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we reopen your word again. And we earnestly pray that you will not let us hear it in vain, read, preached, and taught. We pray further, Lord, that its delivery will be effectual by the convincing power of the blessed Holy Spirit. We pray that by the proclamation of your word this day, that we will be built up in our most holy faith, that we will be more sanctified in the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray, Lord, that there will be a greater assurance of our faith in Christ. We trust in you according to your promise that as your word goes forth, it will not return to you void, but it will indeed accomplish the purpose for which it has been sent. These things we pray with assurance in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, for his sake. Amen. I invite you this morning to take the word of God and let's turn to the gospel according to John. And finally, chapter 7. Chapter 7 in John's Gospel. I say finally because we've been almost an entire month out of John 7. So, very thankful that we are back here. This morning we're going to be looking at what I have called rivers of living water which, of course, is a term that comes right out of the text. Beginning at verse 37 and reading to verse 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so reads the infallible inerrant, sufficient word of the living holy God. In Israel's ancient history, there were three great annual feasts where all the Jewish people were commanded to assemble and celebrate. In the springtime, it was the Passover. In the summertime, it was Pentecost. And during the fall, they honored the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, as it's also called. Among these three feasts, none was more anticipated than the Feast of Booths. In fact, the Feast of Booths was regarded as the greatest and most exciting of the Jewish feasts because it marked the completion of the harvest season, which to an agrarian people was a very big deal. 
But as it concerned Israel's covenant relationship with God, the Feast of Booths recalled Israel's sojourn and reminded the Jews of how God had provided for them throughout their exodus from Egypt and journey to the promised land. So there was no annual feast then more thrilling to the Jews than the Feast of Booths. When it was celebrated, it lasted seven days with a special festival climaxing the feast on the eighth day, which is the first day of the week, Sunday. During this feast, the people built and lived in shelters made of branches as their ancestors had done after leaving Egypt. The residents of Jerusalem built their booths on the roofs of their houses and in the streets and squares. And so, as you can imagine, for an entire week, the city of Jerusalem became one big party. But during this festival, there was a ritual the Jews performed where they assembled in the temple court as the priests processed from the nearby pool of Siloam, bearing a golden flagon filled with water. When they arrived, trumpets announced their entry in the temple. And once at the temple, the priests marched around the altar as the temple choir sang the praise psalms of the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. At the conclusion, all the men in the crowd took up a sheep in the right hand and a piece of fruit in the left, signifying the gathering or signifying the gathered harvest and cried out three times, give thanks to the Lord. At this moment, the water was then poured by the priests on the altar. This particular ceremony during the Feast of Booths made three points to the Jewish people. First, it recalled the Exodus when God had provided for Israel by making water flow from a rock. Second, the ritual thanked God for the harvest and petitioned Him for abundant rains in the year to come. Finally, and most importantly, the ritual looked forward to the coming age of the Messiah Recalling Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 12 and verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, on the eighth day, this celebration, very special celebration in the temple, had passed once again in the memories of the Jewish people. They began dismantling their booths and prepared to depart to their homes as they enjoyed a whole day of psalm singing. This is what the Jews did year after year at the conclusion of the Feast of Booths. But as we turn this morning to our study in John chapter 7, 37 to 39, we have the record of one of these annual closings to the Feast of Booths. Yet it was a conclusion on the eighth day that not a single Jew at this moment would have ever dreamed. With the anticipation to the coming age of the Messiah fresh on their minds due to the preceding water ritual, John tells us in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What a moment this was. What a moment. Having celebrated this feast for centuries in Israel's history, on this day, at the close of this 
particular feast, the age of the promised Messiah had dawned. And there he stands, standing before them, revealing the reality of the salvation they had only seen in a shadow ritual. If anyone thirsts, Jesus cries out, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Concerning all that our Lord Jesus is declaring by these words and John's own theological narrative commentary in verse 39, there are three things very specifically that I want us to consider. First, there is a great invitation given. Second, there is a great promise made. And third, there is a great purpose seen. To begin with, let's look at a great invitation given. A great invitation given. Reading verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There are two preliminary facts we shouldn't miss here to start with. First, the fact that Jesus gives this salvific invitation is remarkable when you consider that his immediate audience have been nothing but hostile to him since his arrival in Jerusalem. No one in the majority was looking at Jesus as their Savior and Messiah. Second, the fact that he stood up and declared his message signified the critical importance of what he was saying. When Jewish rabbis taught, their custom was always from the position of sitting down. But Jesus stood up, which emphasized the crucial nature of what he was declaring. Furthermore, John says that Jesus cried out, which is the translation of a Greek verb that means to exclaim with a loud voice. So this invitation Jesus made was not given in a conversational tone, but with a great vocal exertion. Jesus wanted everyone to hear what he had to say. And what did Jesus cry out to the multitudes on this last great day of the Feast of Booths? Well, what was it? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In this great invitation Jesus makes, we see three points of importance that help us understand and appreciate the gospel call to sinners. In the first place, we notice the scope of the invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Note the word, anyone. If we drop down to verse 38, Jesus even employs the word, whoever by the use of these terms, the implication is that it doesn't matter who you are or what you may have been, despite how wicked, how foul, how sinful you may be. Jesus says, whoever you are, come to me and drink. And how this reminds us as the church that when it comes to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
we keep it from no one. There is a real, sincere, general call of the gospel to every sinner in every people group scattered throughout the world. In the second place, we notice the particular persons invited. Yes, it is to everyone, but note this, it is to everyone who does what? Who thirsts. Who thirsts. This verb thirst is figurative, denoting the spiritual thirst a sinner discovers about themselves as they see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin and begin to feel the weight of their guilt. J.C. Ryle elaborates further when he describes this thirst as an anxiety of soul, a desire for pardon, wanting forgiveness, deeply sensible of his soul's need and earnestly desires help to remedy it. So they are awakened then to a thirst of their soul for spiritual relief. It's like Martin Luther, who spent 13 years of his life seeking soul relief as his conscience remained under the growing weight of his sin. Luther had a desperate soul thirst for salvation from his sins and acceptance with God, but there was nothing. Nothing Roman Catholicism was doing to quench Luther's soul thirst. No, Luther would discover by God's grace that the only remedy to relieve his soul thirst was in Jesus Christ alone. But the point is, there was a driving spiritual thirst that drove Martin Luther ultimately to Christ the Lord. So then, in this invitation Jesus makes... He points in particular to people who are thirsting not for the mere physical appetites to be met, but thirsting out of their heart and soul to be cleansed of their sins and put right with God. In the third place, we notice the exclusivity of the invitation. Jesus says plainly and directly, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then in verse 38, whoever believes in me, the sinner who is thirsting is directed to no other but God's eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ that the sinner will find true and lasting relief for his soul's greatest burdens. And so Jesus says to anyone who thirsts, come to me, believe in me. We see the same invitation repeated by the apostles in the book of Acts. When they said, for instance, in Acts 4 and verse 12, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or take what the apostle Paul said. To the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 31, when Paul was, was asked, what must I do to be saved? To which he responded to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. True salvation, which delivers a sinner from the condemnation of their sins and reconciles them to God, is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus must be the sole object of saving faith if we are to be at peace with God and thereby justified by God. There is no other way 
no other course a sinner can possibly take and find certain and sure redemption for his soul but in Christ alone. And so Jesus, in this great invitation to everyone who hears him, directs them to none other but him. None other but him. It is a very exclusive invitation. So this is the great invitation Jesus gives. It is to anyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, yet they are thirsting from their soul to be right with God. And so to such a one as this, with this awakened thirst, Jesus expresses in the plainest and simplest of terms, come to me and drink. Believe in me. But not only do we see a great invitation given. In the second place, we also notice there is a great promise made. There is a great promise made. Reading verses 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When sinners go to Jesus and drink of the wells of his salvation by faith, what happens? What happens? Do they remain as they have always been? Well, we know the biblical answer, no. <laughs> no. Our Lord says that those who believe in him shall have rivers of living water flowing out of their heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, John tells us what it means in verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The rivers of living water describe the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But, underscore this, it is a fullness of the Spirit's work that John tells us would not come till Jesus was glorified. Well, when did that happen? When did this happen in the life of our Lord? When was he glorified? Well, it was when Jesus ascended back to the Father. At which point the Father sent the Spirit by the mediation and merits of the Son. And thus the Spirit was given in a way he had not yet been received before in redemptive history. Yet the primary point pressed here in John 7 verses 38 and 39 is that for all who receive Jesus Christ unto salvation, the outflow of their lives will be like rivers of living water. By the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the life of the believer in Christ, there will come forth an evident outflow of grace which shows and proves to others that something has happened of a supernatural origin. Such an inward transformation of life has taken place 
that it cannot be contained or concealed, but it will burst forth like rivers of living water. This then is our Lord's great promise to all who come to Him and trust Him for salvation. You will receive the Holy Spirit from whose work your life will be forever changed. That's the essence of what Jesus is promising. This tells us, of course, that if someone claims to have trusted in Christ to save them, then we should be able to see and detect a distinctive difference in how they think, talk, and live. This is because having true faith is having the Holy Spirit in the life. Now listen to that. Having true faith in Christ is having the Holy Spirit in the life. It is having the supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10 speaks to this redeeming reality in this way. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So in coming to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in Him alone for salvation, will be proven by a changed life that is the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit whose work in our hearts will produce rivers of living water. This is the great promise Jesus makes. But from the great promise and the great invitation, let's consider lastly from our text, there is a great purpose seen. There is a great purpose seen. Reading once again verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The change that takes place in the life of a believer because of the Holy Spirit's inner work is not meant to be a blessing only to the individual Christian. Jesus doesn't promise rivers of living water flowing merely in the heart of the believer. But Jesus says it is out of his heart, out of his heart, that these life-giving rivers flow. In other words, by the work of the Spirit, this new life we have in Christ as the result of salvation becomes a blessing not just to ourselves, but to all those around us. To all those around us. As one writer said, we become springs of life for the world. It is noteworthy that Jesus prefaces both the promise and implied purpose of these life-giving waters gushing forth from the believer's life with the words, as the scripture has said. 
as the scripture has said. Many scholars are really unclear as to what specific biblical passage our Lord is quoting. Some believe it could be Isaiah 58, 11, which says, You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. If this is the reference, then what Jesus is teaching us is that we are well watered by him. And as we are well watered by him, we will then serve as a spring of spiritual refreshment for others. It's not that the Christian is the source of living water, but we are a spring through which blessings flow from Jesus and his gospel to the world. Another possible scripture reference, which is more likely since this passage was actually read during the Feast of Booths, is Zechariah 14 and verse 8, which says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Now, what is so significant about that prophecy is that Jerusalem has no river. Jerusalem has no river. So Zechariah was speaking then of the outflowing of the Spirit of God in the gospel. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce expounded on this meaning and application to John 7, 38, when he wrote the following, It is from no earthly Jerusalem that the living waters go forth. It is from the dwelling place of God in lives that are consecrated to him, in believing hearts, where Christ has taken up abode. The principal point being made is that in the life of those who drink from the wells of God's salvation in Christ, what flows from them is a life that leads to life. What flows from them is a life that leads to life. The way in which a Christian lives by the power of the Holy Spirit works to bring life to others. The Christian life doesn't point the world to more of the world. The Christian life doesn't point the world to just more of the world. But rather the Christian life points the world to the life that comes only from God in Christ. It is a life that brings others to Christ and leaves them with Christ. But the fruit of such a life will not be fully known till every Christian stands before the judgment seat of Christ commenting at length on this particular truth, J.C. Ryle wrote this. That day alone, speaking of the judgment day, that day alone shall reveal the amount of good that every believer is made an instrument of doing to others from the day of his conversion. Some do good while they live by their tongues, like the apostles and first preachers of the gospel. Some do good when they are dying, like Stephen and the penitent thief and our own martyred reformers at the stake. Some do good long after they are dead, by their writings, like Baxter and Bunyan and McShane. But in one way or another, probably 
almost all believers will be found to have been fountains of blessings by word or by deed, by precept or by example, directly or indirectly, they are always leaving their marks on others. They know it not now, but they will find at last that it is true. Christ's saying shall be fulfilled. So then the great purpose that will be seen by the work of the Spirit in that life Jesus has saved will be becoming a life of heavenly blessing to others. Out of his heart, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. From one believer in Christ, instrumentally, by his word and work and example, waters of life, shall flow forth to the everlasting benefit of those in whose path God has placed his servant. And brothers and sisters, that is what the normal Christian life looks like. That's the normal Christian life. Rivers of living water flowing to others. But... As we draw this study to a close, the question has to be asked. Is this the consistent mark and example of our lives? For those of us here today who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit, is the outflow of our life rivers of living water? While it should be, and as, if, and as I've just said, that is the normal Christian life. Yet, it is also very possible, according to what the New Testament teaches, to grieve and so quench the Spirit and His work because of our disobedience and unfaithfulness. As Christians, according to Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13... We have a responsibility to work out our own salvation in concert with the Spirit of God working in us by His power. But if we are drinking in so much of the world's pleasures and petty glories, then we can actually stifle and extinguish the outflow of the Spirit's power to affect and minister to others. This is what happened to the Corinthian church. This is what happened to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3. So as believers in Christ, we must not take for granted the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and somehow think that what we say and do will not affect the Spirit's working in our lives to others. 
Haven't you ever wondered why the sanctification of Christians differ so much from one believer to another believer? Why is it that some Christians are just frankly far more godly and holy than other Christians? Well, they have less of the world attached to them than other Christians do. But why is that? Why is that? It's because they live more of their life at the fountain of living waters than wasting their time at the broken cisterns of this world which cannot give life. And so while Jesus makes the great promise that out of the heart of those he saves shall flow rivers of living water, when we take in the rest of God's word, we see that the outflow of that new life is never separated from our faithfulness to obey the Lord in all things. So, I would say to you, my fellow Christian, strive to be more careful in how you walk day after day. Be more faithful to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with Him. To be more under His influence, which is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. More under His influence than that of this godless world that is always vying for our devotion. Only then, understand this beloved, only then will we be the blessing to others God calls us to be as His people, showing forth the real life that is ours in Jesus Christ the Lord. We have a responsibility. We're not antinomians. We're not hyper-Calvinists. We have a responsibility in how we live each day. Why do you think the commands are there? They're not there for a Christian to look at and go, well, that's great. I'm glad God will take care of that. No. You've got to work it out, what he's working in. And imagine, just imagine, if more and more Christians were at the fountain of living waters day after day, taking in, taking in the Lord's word, following the Lord's will in obedience to his word. Imagine then the great outflow of the rivers of living water. I dare say we might even have a revival. Then. Take to heart what you have been given by God in Christ. The scriptures say, do not grieve the spirit, do not quench him. 
walk by him. Keep in step with him. And that must be every day. By his grace, to his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an awe-inspiring call and responsibility you have laid upon us in concert with the incredible work of your saving grace in our lives and that evidence by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we read and we hear what we read in your word that we are to walk by the Spirit, we are to keep in step with Him, we are to be filled with Him. And so, Father, we pray for greater sanctifying grace to strengthen and enlarge our hearts to a greater faithfulness and obedience to You, to give ourselves in greater holy effort to be more faithful and, and thereby more and more careful and how we live before you and others, Lord, day in and day out. It is the heart's desire, Father, of your people that those rivers of living water will flow more freely and fully from our hearts to others. That is the cry of the new nature. But we recognize, Lord, that there is still remaining sin. There is still the flesh combined with the world and the scheming of the wicked one. And so, Father, we dare not take for granted what is before us in your calling to us to do all things to your glory and thus to obey you in all things. Forgive us for every time we have fallen short of this, for every time that we have not been faithful to you and how often we have quenched and grieved the Holy Spirit. By your grace, Holy Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus, we make it our resolve to repent of this. We trust in you for such a work of your grace in us all as your people today that before this watching world, they will see in our individual lives and collectively as the church the greater evidence and proof of what your salvation does indeed bring in the life of one sinner. Out of our hearts, rivers of living water flowing. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen.